Hi, this is Arielle Jack, Student Ministries Director here at New Life Church. Thank you for joining our podcast today. I pray the following presentation encourages, challenges, and inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy the message. Well, we're starting a new series, Future Hope, Pain, Redemption, and Beauty in the Book of Isaiah. So we're going to be using Isaiah this series. It's a six-week series. And uh, we're going to be kind of jumping around a little bit, but we're going to use uh, the book of Isaiah as our outline for this, this series, and I'm excited about it. The book of Isaiah is very rich. It's got a lot of great stuff in it, a lot of stuff that ties the Old Testament to the New Testament. So in this six-week series, we'll show God's holy and perfect presence redeeming sinful and broken people. God's people have rebelled and forgotten the great work of the one who has saved and rescued them. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Through a series of prophecies, God warns his children to be, uh, of the consequences of their disobedience while ensuring them future hope and comfort through the coming of the Messiah. The title of today's message is Shock and Awe. Shock and awe. That became a very, uh, very familiar statement back during the, the Bush era. Shock and awe. And the big idea for this message is this. Experiencing God's splendor and receiving his atonement motivates us to share in his great redemptive work. And I want you to notice it's, it's underlined. His great redemptive work. Would you look at Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, stop. It's like, oh man, just got in it. Just stop. We got to go over this. Who is this Uzziah guy? (laughs) It was like, he's going to get, no. It breaks. King Uzziah died around the year 740 B.C., bringing an era to an end of prosperity and stability for God's people. Assyrian records, not just Scripture, but there's, there's, there's corroborating records out there about this King Uzziah, record that he um, reigned for 42 years. He reigned, his reign marked the high point of Judah's power. Now, we have to understand that the the nation of Israel was split at this time between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. Okay, so there was these two kingdoms that were, were existing because of the problems after Solomon um, died. Jerusalem, <clears throat> so during this time, it was a time of great uh, prosperity. Uh, Jerusalem's walls were reconstruction, re- reconstructed, towers were added. And engines of war were mounted at strategic points. A large army was also maintained. The nation's prosperity under Uzziah was considered to have been a result of his fidelity to God. It even talks about how the desert became green again because of irrigation projects under Uzziah. This guy is like the prototype Messiah. I mean... These are the types of things that, that, 
that prophecy talks about will happen when the Messiah comes. Israel will be at its highest point. The deserts will bloom. He's like the prototype Messiah, right? He was probably a portrait of what the first century Jewish leaders thought the Messiah should be like. They had this idea, and they had David, they had Uzziah in their head. They had these types of characters in their minds as to what Jesus should be. Oh, there's a whole sermon right there. We have stereotypes, we have ideas, we have thoughts about what Jesus should be. Yet we often stumble over what he is. Well, he should do that, really? I thought he was God. I don't, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I think I'll let him choose what he is. According to the biblical record, Uzziah's strength caused him to become proud, which led to his destruction. He attempted to burn incense in the temple, an act restricted to the priests. He thought, God has blessed me. I must be, you know, I can do anything I want. When the priests attempt to stand, uh, send him from the temple, he wouldn't go, and he was immediately struck with leprosy. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uzziah is an example of that. His son Jotham ruled for his father until Uzziah's death. This seems to be the pattern of Israel in the Old Testament. They do really well, and then they get proud, and they forget, and they think that they're so great, and they fall. Why is it that this is the constant pattern of the Israelite nation in the Old Testament? I'm going to tell you why. Because they're made up, the nation is made up of people. I don't care who you are. I don't care what nationality you are. If you're a people, this is the tendency that we have. When things go great, we take the credit for it. When things go bad, we lay it on God. I'm not wrong. When things are hunky-dory, man, I earned that promotion. I'm so great. There's a story of a, a pastor and his wife were driving down the highway after he preached a sermon. And it was a particularly well-received sermon. And he leans over to his wife and says, how, Hon, how many really great pastors do you think there are in the world? And she leans over to him and says, one less than you think. Ah, thank God for wives. That wasn't me, by the way, but it could have been, right? It could have been. could have been any of us. When we do things great, we think we're great. We forget. We forget. It's not just the pattern, pattern of nations. It's unfortunately the pattern of humanity. Into this spiritual quagmire, God reveals himself in, po- in power in a, vivid, in a vivid way to the prophet Isaiah. All right, let's continue. All right? So, in the, king, the year of King Uzziah, I, Elisha, excuse me, Isaiah, not Elisha, that would be weird. 
saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Just, 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 we'll pause for a second here. We're going to read that again. I want you to put yourself there. Don't just read this. Think of yourself that you, think, put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. Put yourself in the socks that are about to get knocked off. You ready? I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he, he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Socks gone. I mean, think about that. Can you imagine what that vision must have been like? God is described as sitting on a throne, lifted up, surrounded by worshiping angels. This may have been a very literal vision of God. I, I, you know, we don't know exactly how he saw this. He's trying to describe it in human language the best he can. But it might have actually been this what he actually saw. But whether it's a, a, a reality or it's a vision of God, it's symbolic in many ways. The Lord is sitting on a throne, symbolizing his ultimate kingship. He is high and lifted up, symbolizing that he is above all authority, all authority. The train of his robe fills the temple. Now, what does that mean? That's kind of a, a weird concept. I just, I, I get visions of like bolts and bolts of fabric. I, I, you know, just filling. What does that mean? It symbolizes that the holy temple, the holy temple is simply his footstool. It's not his throne. We think of the, you know, pagan temples where we, the, the, the statue is sitting there and uh, this is his temple. No, 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 no. This is the, the, the temple was basically his footstool. It's how he connected to humans. So the robe filled the temple. Um, the angels are declaring the holiness of God to one another, unable to keep quiet about the amazing glory of God in whose presence they are continually in existence. These angels are called seraphim or seraph, which is translated the fiery ones. That's cool. Sounds like it looks like something you'd put on a motorcycle. A fire angel. Like think of these these angels, the fiery ones. They have six wings. The description I got in the commentaries was that the ones that covered the face were there to protect them from the holiness of God. The ones that covered their feet were there because of the the uh, inadequacy or the dirtiness. Feet symbolize dirt. They still do. <laughs> the, uh, the unworthiness of even these, these and the other ones were, were able to fly with. What a, what a vision, huh? What do they say? The fiery winged humanoid beings are continually shouting, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The only other time this thrice invoked, uh, invocation of God's holiness is found in Revelation 4.8, and it is given, the only other time in Scripture, it's given by these same beings. Interesting. They're constantly declaring God's glory. In ancient Judaism, the number three signifies completeness and stability. So what we can say is they're shouting in a loud voice to one another, God, the Lord of hosts, is completely and utterly holy. I hope you're still in his shoes because this is a pretty intense passage of Scripture. The holiness of God is unique perfection, his complete power, and his transcendent glory that fills the whole earth. These qualities are shared by no other. He is unlike any. I love this. The created, the uncreated creator. The uncreated creator. Verse 4. Ready? Here we go. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, and, and if you're in his shoes, you're probably thinking the same thing. Woe is me, for I am lost. Now that word lost could be better translated undone or unmade. Think about a little nuclear bomb, a little atom bomb. Boom, I'm just done. In the presence of God, I am unmade. That's the feeling he got. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. At the sight of the Lord, Isaiah is undone. He becomes painfully aware of his own smallness. Think about the contrast here between Uzziah and Isaiah. Uzziah goes into the temple and thinks he has the authority to burn incense, holy incense before God. Isaiah is in the presence of God and he is humbled. His smallness, his mediocrity, his sinfulness is apparent to him and all he wants to do is crawl into his own grave and die because he's so inadequate before a holy God. There's a contrast between the two. His frailty is magnified to infinite levels in comparison to the glory of the king. We are often impressed by our own power and ability until we are met with something or someone greater than us. We're all good until we hit the wall. Something bigger than us comes into our life and we can't handle it on our own anymore. And then we look to the one who can often. It's interesting that so often people come to Christ 
they usually don't come at a high point in their life. That shouldn't really surprise us. That's what humans do. That's how humans are. When we're good, we don't need anything. We're good. I can handle this. But when we come up against something that is bigger than us, we realize our own inadequacy. It seems to be the natural sinful pattern of humanity. We think we're so great, we become kings in our our own eyes, masters of our own universe. Then we hit the wall and we are presented with the depths of our inadequacies. Some sink into despair. We've seen that in in our lives. Anybody ever see anybody falling into despair? I probably deal with it more than you. Not me, dealing with people. Others look to God. It's not until you're at the bottom that you realize how deep you already were. (laughs) Verse 6, then, you can just picture this prophet of God face to the ground wishing he would just be gone, be undone. Feeling that way. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he took with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. Now, many commentary, uh, commentators will say this has to have been a vision, not a real thing because the atonement didn't happen until Christ came, so therefore this is representative. And I tend to agree with them on that. Because a coal from the altar would never be enough to take away his sins. But it was a a symbol of what was happening. That God, that this, this person could never be enough in themselves. It had to be something that was from the outside. Rather than leaving Isaiah to languish in his poor and humiliated state, God touches his lips with a coal from the altar. This burning fire represents the purifying power of God that comes from the sacrificial altar, the place where offerings were made to atone for sin. This image points us to the work of Jesus, who himself was offered up as sacrifice for our sins, making us clean and who also purifies us and calls us to his work. Before we can now follow and serve God, we must first be cleansed by him. Before we can follow him, we must be cleansed by him. Every re- well, it should at least, every restaurant in America is supposed to have this sign in their bathrooms. Workers must wash hands, right? What does it actually say? Employees must wash hands before returning to work. Thank you for putting that in the bathroom. You'd think that would be obvious, but especially at, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you want that in the bathroom. Why? We've all gotten a huge education this year about general hygiene and how washing your hands can keep from spreading illnesses, right? Because 
when you're contaminated, whether by using the restroom or any other way, anything now that you touch has now become contaminated. Right? So there needs to be a cleansing process before you can get into, the, into work again. Um, God himself cleanses us through the work of Jesus and makes us useful for his work and his purposes. There's nothing worse than somebody representing God who has not yet been made clean by God. That's a train wreck. That's a problem. And there's too many out there who speak for God yet have yet to be clean by God. How do you know who that person is? Well, it's going to be marked by pride. It's going to be marked by pride. If you can't sense a, a humility in that person, you've not been cleaned by God. Because when we encounter God, the only, we're not going to be like, yeah, you got a good one here, God. Watch me knock it out of the park. It's now, we're going to be down on our faces, realizing that we are completely inadequate, and that only God, in His mercy and grace, could make us worthy to be part of His work. Now that Isaiah has beheld the glory of God and has been made clean, he is called into the work of God, the, God, the work that God has prepared for him. Verse 8. And I heard the voice. He's talking about, when he says the voice, he's talking about the Lord's voice. The voice. Did you know that Hebrew people don't even write the name of God? In their text, in their writing, it'll just be like a dot, dot, dot. It's too holy. I love, I love that. See, I think in our contemporary culture, we take God too nonchalant. Maybe it's because he's be, his name has become a swear word in our culture. I don't know. Isn't it interesting that people can use the name of Jesus Christ as a swear word all day long, but you write a cartoon about Muhammad and there's riots. It's true. Think about it for a second. We're too, we don't care. We should care. I'm not saying we should riot. But what I am saying is that it should be holy to us. We should treat him as for who he is. I mean, one of the things I tell people all the time when they get all upset about our culture, I said, what do you expect? Simple people are going to do simple things. What do you expect? Why are you holding people who are unredeemed to a standard that they don't even know? But never let it be said of you. You do know. The only time the name of Jesus Christ should come out of your lips is in reverence and honor and praise and glory and thanksgiving and power. Never let it be said of you. Well, you're kind of harping on that. Yeah, I am. Did you read this with me? I'm not making this stuff up. This is in the Word of God. 
This is who God is. We forget. We get too comfortable. The only reason we have any ability to be comfortable in the presence of God at all is because of God himself. Otherwise, we'd be undone too. Remember what we talked about in communion? It was our penalty that he took. It should have been our body, and it should have been our blood. We should have been undone because of our sinfulness. But God, but God. We can't forget that. We can't. When we start understanding that, then all the guidelines and regulations in this book become a whole lot more palatable because it's not about you. If he asks you to do something, guess what? Yeah, okay, yes, yes, sir. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because I'm a worm. Because I don't deserve anything. But by your grace, you've given me everything. Eight, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Now that's a very basic. Let me read it to you the way Pastor Dave reads this. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who? Oh, me, me, me. Me, me, me. Send me, send me. Send me. He didn't, I, I almost picture him not even getting the words out. Just me, 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 me. I will do it. Because you are, you are God. Me. Send me. He's looking around. Nobody else raised their hand. Me. I'm the only one here. That's how I picture it. Because when we're presented with the holiness of who God is, that's the only response that we could possibly give. When we see, when we understand, I we can't understand, we can't see. I, how do I say this? When we start to get a, a glimpse of God's glory, I pray that God would give us a glimpse of his glory this year. Because if we get a glimpse of his glory, no matter what he asks us to do, the answer will be, me, send me, I'll do it, I'll do it. I don't care what it is. Will you tell me what to do? I'm going. And I'll be honest with you. I've had days like that. I've had days like that where I'll, I will do anything you want me to do, God. I will do anything. I will go. I will do. I will whatever. And just like Uzziah, dang it, my humanity keeps crawling back in. And I started thinking, man, but what if I did that, then I'd lose this. Are you kidding me? Are you stupid, David? God, give me a glimpse of your glory. I'm not just, it's not theater up here, guys. I'm trying to, I, I don't know how to express this any better. I mean, I'm just saying, this is the word of God. And when we read it and, and look at it and really dissect it and put ourselves in those shoes, sockless shoes, is there any other response? No, there isn't. Your humanity will creep back in and you're going to have to beat it back. 
You're going to. You're going to have to say things like this. Not my will, but thine be done. If Jesus had to say that, you're going to have to struggle with it too. You're going to have to say things like this. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're going to have to say that. If Jesus had to, he was looking straight at one of his best friends. Get behind me, Satan. If he had to do that, we're going to have to do it too. That's the beauty of the incarnate Christ that we just talked about for four weeks. In every way, he was tempted just like you. And he gave us a roadmap on how to be more than conquerors. And not only a roadmap, but he, put, he filled us with the fuel to, do, to get there. And that is the Holy Spirit. He didn't leave us alone. God is powerful enough to accomplish all that he desires. However, he is patient and loving enough to allow us to be part of it. Who me? Me, me. I'll go. Look at me. Yeah, me. Look at me. Me over here. You know that kid in class? That was not me in class. Unless it was like, can you go take the garbage out? Me, I'll do it. Get out of class. Me, I'll do it. We had one, we had one uh, teacher in our school. He was also our coach. We liked him. Every once in a while, we were like, hey, coach, you think we could go take some foul shots to get ready for the game tonight? Sure, go ahead. Didn't care what period it was. Didn't care what was going on. And the teachers, we were all in the, in the gym shooting free throws, and the teacher was like, what are you guys doing in here? Coach, that'd be good. I was the first to volunteer for that uh, duty. I was very last to be like, so the answer to this complicated math question, I don't want, don't call me, don't, I'm small, don't call me, make yourself small, make yourself small. And at least his hand shut up. Anyway, uh, he doesn't need us. He doesn't, did you see who his, his entourage was? Flaming angels. He doesn't need us. But when we see God's glory, we automatically want to worship. We automatically want to help. It's, it's, we're built that way. That's who we are. And he goes, okay. Notice this. Um, he didn't mandate that Isaiah do it. He said, who will go? He didn't say, hey, Isaiah, you got a gift today of being able to see all this. You need to do this now. Maybe he would have. He didn't have to. Because as soon as Isaiah was confronted and redeemed, man, he was on his feet. Choose me. As believers who acknowledge God's greatness and our own sinfulness, we who have received his great grace and salvation, how can we do anything but respond with eagerness and joy to the call of God? Right? 
Here we are, Lord. Whatever you want. Send me. Whatever is in this book that you want me to do, done. That's how, that's how great you are. When we get a glimpse of the splendor and glory of God, all of our excuses and all of our selfish desires melt away in the presence of this amazing being. I, at the beginning of this year, that's why I was so excited about this series. At the beginning of this year, I don't know what's going to come this year. I've, I've kind of given up on that. I, I learned this year, many of the plans of a man's heart, the Lord's purpose prevails. I did not plan for this. You know what I planned for? Every one of these seats to be taken. I didn't plan a registration. You just find a seat. If you can find one, good, otherwise you're standing. That's my plan. I am, I am, I am I'm surrendered to the fact that I cannot plan 2021 out. I got to make some plans and say, okay, God, this is what I got going. Feel free to interrupt. At the beginning of this year, this year though, I want us to get a glimpse of this amazing God. So that no matter what he calls us to, the answer is hand raised high, heart of willingness, saying, send me. Send me. I'll do it. I'll do it. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for some of these intense visions that you've given. God, I pray right now that as a church, we would get a glimpse of who you are this year. And if that's all that happens in this year, that we have gotten a glimpse of the splendor and glory of, of God, that would be enough. Because I know that once we receive a glimpse of who you are, this church will, with one voice, resound, here I am, Lord, send me. I know that's the heart of your people in this church. So, Lord, once again, renew our vision of you. Help us to see you for who you are, not who we've made you to be. Cast down every idol that we've put on your throne. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, to know who you are as you want to be known. Help us to be humble before you, God. Thank you for, in our low estate, in our undoneness, you sent Jesus Christ and sacrificed him on the altar of this world so that we could be made clean. Send us, Lord. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. May God give you his grace, his mercy, and a vision for who he is and what he has for you this year.
God bless. Have a great week.